You're listening to the Bleacher Connection, a part of the Belly Up Sports Network. Here are your hosts, Ken and Trevor. And welcome to the show, everyone. A little bit of a change up this week as it is Father's Day weekend. And this weekend, Trevor is spending it with his family. So for this week, you just get myself. I'll be uh, covering off a lot of different topics this week. Some things that have come up through the NHL, the Blue Jays, the CFL, the NHL in general, as we have the Stanley Cup Finals happening. And we've had some coaches hired and some players on the move. So we're going to I'm going to talk about all of that. We're going to cover it off. But as always, we're going to start with Are You Kidding Me? Are You Kidding Me? It's brought to you by Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com and use the code BELLYUPFANTASY for 20% off. Well, this week, there was a trade in the NHL. And it was one of two that have happened so far in this beginnings of the offseason for most teams that are not in the playoffs. Uh, This week... The Vegas Golden Knights traded Evgeny Dadnoff to the Montreal Canadiens for Shea Weber. Now, it, most times you'd probably consider that to be quite a big deal, a big trade, a blockbuster, if you will. Except that Shea Weber, through injuries, is probably not going to play hockey again. Now, he was the Montreal Canadiens captain, so he was a big piece of their team. He was a big piece of why they did well enough to go to the cup. I mean, it was very different situations that season with, you know, the North division and how everything was set up. Probably could say they got lucky in their run and how they got to the Stanley cup final, but Shea Weber is essentially he's done uh, possibly for his career and his cap hit is 7.8 plus million dollars for the next little while and his contract will expire at the end of the 25 26 season so vegas now has four years starting next season of 7.8 plus million ltir cap relief now this is a team in vegas who has lived and died in their very short life right at the cap ceiling and then some They've brought in a lot of guys and signed us to some big money deals. You've got now Jack Eichel through trade at 10 million per season for the next four years. You have Mark Stone at 9.5 for the next five years. Pacioretty, 7 million for one more season. Carlson at 5.9 for five more years. This team, oh, don't forget Petrangelo at 8.8 for five more years. This team needs to get under the cap and they're finding ways, creative ways, will you call it to do that. Now the pickup of Shea Weber and the moving out of the 5 million, which they tried to do at the deadline, but a big, huge confusion and just gong show around Dadnoff's contract and no trade clause caused that deal with Anaheim to fall through and they did some magic cap work to make it fit at the time. Uh, and they took the first chance they could to get rid of that $5 million to make sure that they were cap compliant. As it stands right now, 
the projected cap hit of the Vegas Golden Knights is $85.15 million. Now, that is above the cap. I believe next year's cap is looking at around $82.5 million. I think it was just announced. So there's still $3 million over the cap. Shea Weber's LTIR contribution will get them just under that $82.5 million. The problem for the Vegas Golden Knights, and frankly, I don't mind it based on how they've been operating with a lack of loyalty to their players. They still have Keegan Colsar, who's an RFA. Nicholas Waugh, uh, who's also an RFA. Matthias Janmark is a UFA. Those three forward spots still need to be filled. You also then have uh, Dylan Coughlin on defense, who's an RFA. Oh, sorry, no, he's still under contract. You only have one goaltender in Robin Lehner right now. Laurent Bressois is signed under another year. You have Patrick Nolan, who's got another year. Those guys are all on injured reserve, as well as Nicholas Haig, Brett Howden, Jake Bischoff, Riley Smith. Bischoff and Smith are UFAs. The other two are RFAs. How are they going to spend the money to fill those positions? The addition of Weber's contract isn't enough to get them under the cap to be able to sign these players. So we're going to see what kind of loyalty the Vegas Golden Knights have to some of their players. And will some of these key players for them still be around come opening night, come training camp? Will the Vegas Golden Knights be very active at the draft? They don't have a first round pick this year. Now that went to, uh, to Buffalo. They have some work to do. They have a lot of work to do. And I think for the first time within their short lifespan, the Vegas Golden Knights are in some very big trouble and how they're going to fill out a roster this year. They've got players, but they've got signings that they need to make, and it's going to be very difficult for them. Um, I'm interested to see how it's going to happen. Uh, Vegas did have some other big news that kind of came down this past week, which I'll talk about in a little bit right now. The are you kidding me is just these tradings of contracts. We had Shea Weber go from Montreal to Vegas. We had Ben Bishop go from Dallas to Buffalo. Now, I this one is a little bit of a head scratcher because Ben Bishop has one more year left on his deal at just under $5 million. Now, the position that the Buffalo Sabres are in, they're either planning to go big or go home with the, this year's free agent frenzy once it begins in july 13th i believe it is this year no longer july 1st which hurts because here in canada that's a our canada day we get it off and i always just love grab a coffee sit on the couch throw on tsn or Sportsnet, and watch the signings come through another big thing this year is there is no legal tamper period which means teams can't talk to players until the opening of free agency so are we going to see a a, a flurry of signings as the open opening minutes of 9 a.m. I don't know that we will. We probably will because I'm sure they're getting around it some way. Um, we'll find out. But Buffalo has three first-round picks this year. They got their own. They have Florida's and they have Vegas. Vegas's pick. So they're going to be very active in the first round of the draft. Now, does that include trades? Are, are they willing to move? Florida or Vegas's pick to move up. But 
Buffalo has 35 and a half million of projected cap space to work with to sign a good amount of players. They've got four forward positions to fill as well as four defensive positions and two goalies that they have to sign. They, they are lacking a lot of players right now. They have a lot of cap space. And I think this move and bringing in Bishop's contract will allow them to get more than just the 82 and a half million if they can. And that's where it's frustrating because the league was always clamping down hard and didn't want teams circumventing the cap. But here we are. This is what's happening. You know, I, I've said it on here before. I have no problem with the Canucks having to pay the three and a half million for three years on a Roberto Longo's cap recapture penalty because what they did was deemed to be circumventing the cap. Well, this all that was happening now of trading contracts of players who will never step back on the ice again is cap circumventing and it's frustrating as a Canucks fan and a fan of hockey to see these teams doing it because the whole point of having the cap was so that teams could be on somewhat of an even playing field and we lost a full season and and more over two different lockouts to get to this point of having a salary cap and now you're just letting the rich teams get richer while the t- smaller market teams still can't afford to do this. You still have the Arizona Coyotes paying out very little in actual money to their players, but their contracts are worth X amount of dollars. It's not helping that competitive balance. There, there are certain teams that will not, cannot spend to that cap. So they go out and get a Louis Erickson for the final year of his deal, which is worth $6 million but he's only getting paid one, one and a half. The rules need to change. And if you're going to allow this movement of contracts and while team A trades this player and retains 50% of the contract to this team who retains 50% of that 50% to, and then they trade him to this team so that the final team that gets them is, well, in some cases, either Vegas or Toronto or Tampa Bay, and they're paying a fraction of the salary but the team in the middle gets a good second round draft pick to take on just this money to hit the team, sometimes to hit the salary cap floor. It's a joke. And to have Gary Bettman sitting at the, the opening press conference of the Stanley cup final and commending teams like Tampa and actually naming Tampa and Vegas for their creative cap management. It's frustrating that teams are getting punished for well one team has been punished for circumventing the cap and other teams are being applauded for what they're doing now a team that's going to be sitting in the wings waiting to find out what happens and yeah we will be on here as quick as possible if it actually does is the chicago blackhawks are probably hoping and praying and crossing every finger and toes that they have in the organization and i I wouldn't hate it if it happened if duncan keith retires they are going to be hit with a massive cap recapture penalty because of his deal. doesn't hit the Oilers. It'll hit the Blackhawks who signed that deal. Very front-loaded heavy. But at the same time, will the NHL and Gary Bettman enforce that cap recapture or will they be, nah, you know what, we're good. We'll, we'll let it slide. It's very frustrating as a fan to see that there's two sets of rules and that if you openly can cheat and and you know, I'm not going to complain about Tampa being 18 million over the cap because every team in the cap era 
has gone into the playoffs and been over the cap because of how it's allowed to work. And I would like to see some changes to that. Um, I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon, but until we do, this is what we got to deal with. So are you kidding me? Let's get, move on from these salary dump trades and uh, actually play some hockey and, and make teams stick to this cap. We lost a, an entire season for it some years ago. We got a brand new cap right now or CBA right now. So we're not going to see any changes to it. Very frustrating. Well, we're going to move on to something that's a little gotten a little frustrating over the bit here uh, for myself. Jason flight. Jason flight is brought to you by your partners at Dr. Squatch. Click on the links in our link tree bios on our Twitter profiles, pick up some Dr. Squatch for yourself or for someone else in your family. This week in Jay's in Flight, I'm going to kind of talk about a, a couple things that have happened over the last little week here. And that's a very disappointing series against uh, Baltimore, which started off, you know, the last time uh, Trevor and I talked, Jay's in Flight, the team was going into play teams like Detroit. KC, uh, Baltimore. Now we're looking at the schedule here. They took one of three from Minnesota and the two losses were not good. They took two of three from KC. That's a good series. You got the win out of that. They then went into Detroit, got two of three out of that. That's good. Now comes Baltimore. Now we're going Jay's going to play Baltimore 19 times in a season. And I don't expect them to go 19-0. A team will get a win here and there. But with the way that the schedule is playing out right now and the way that the Yankees are absolutely running away with the division, you cannot give them any ground right now. And any loss to any team, whether it's in division or not, is going to be extremely costly. Now, Taking one of three from Minnesota, not great. Two or three from the next two is good. But you lose two games to Baltimore and you split that series. That is, I almost want to say unacceptable with the way that the Jays can play and the way that Baltimore is playing. They they lost to their fifth, their number five starter who had an ERA of five last year. Like this, That should have been a game that they were able to take and they lost at five, six. The Jays did absolutely what they should have done in the first game and won 11-1. Absolutely dominating performance. What you would expect from the Jays versus a team like Baltimore. The next game, that's the 5-6 loss, or 6-5 loss. The next game, now this is where you get a couple poor managerial decisions from, one from Charlie Montoya, one from Brandon Hyde of Baltimore. In a game, close game when you have the lead and you for the Jays and you are facing Ryan Mountcastle who's already hit one in this game off the facing of the fifth deck which doesn't happen very often you're in a close game with a runner on already on two outs I believe the runner was on second put him on first just walk him and go to the next guy at that point Mountcastle is up with the chance to 
I believe it was tie the game. And he did exactly that with his 12th home run in 28 games against the Blue Jays. That is a very good stat for Ryan Mountcastle. That is a stat as a manager I would have looked at and said, you know what? We're not going to pitch to you here. I'm going to give you first base. And if the guy behind you knocks in one, we still have the lead, but you're not tying the game with one swing, which is exactly what he did. Poor decision, in my opinion, from Charlie Montoya to not put him on. Uh, You have to look at who's up. It doesn't matter what the pitching record is. The guy's already hit a home run. He's been hot and hitting the ball well in this whole series. Put him on. Don't take the chance. So now the game's tied, goes to extra innings. Jays get out of the top of the 10th easily. No damage done. Come to the bottom of the 10th, and Bo Bichette is on, uh, starts off on second base. He was the last out of the ninth. So you got some good wheels on for Vladdy Jr. to come up. And again, this is a situation where I probably would, you know, Hyde should have walked Guerrero. Like, Guerrero is too good of a hitter to give him a chance to win that game. And one of the first pitches he sees, he, line, you know, hits a ground ball out to left left center, and Bobachek comes in to score and game's over. To me, that game got to extras because of a poor managerial decision to not put a guy on base. That game ended because of a poor managerial decision. But the next day, Baltimore went on to absolutely crush the Jays 10 to two. Very frustrating to see them lose in such a way to that team. The big thing with that is you're losing ground on the Yankees who are just winning. The first game against the Yankees in the, in the four game set this week, or sorry, three game set this weekend was a 12 to three loss. That is bad. Like the the Yankees are good, but you got to try. This is who you're competing with. If you can't compete with them now, you're not going to compete with them in October. As it stands, Jays lose that one 12 to three. They go on to the Saturday game, lose that one for nothing behind an Alec Manoa start. Now that game, Charlie did get tossed for defending Manoa. He got... It was a hit batter, which should have probably been a swing as it was a defensive swing, but still swung, but I think came through the uh, strike zone. And Charlie did, went out there and he got tossed, so Alec didn't, but it still wasn't a close game. The Jays offensively weren't in this one. And it's frustrating because right now you've got Hyunjin Ryu, who is out for the season with Tommy John surgery, his second Tommy John surgery. And... You now have Stripling and Kikuchi as your back-end starters for the rest of the year. You need your pitchers going. Alec had a pretty decent game. He did have a high pitch inning where it was well into the high 30s, where he did have 30, I think, eight pitches in one inning, because that's what the Yankees do to you. One of the kind of big question marks right now with the Jays starting rotation is – uh, Kevin Gosman, who started off on fire, absolutely on fire and was pitching great. But his last three starts have not been great, and they've all been losses. This was a guy with a very low ERA. He was winning the games for the Jays. And Minnesota got to him early, got a lot of hits off him. Detroit, again, early. 
And the big loss, the 10-2 loss, was to the Kevin Gosman game. And during the broadcast, Dan Schulman, Pat Talbert, they were talking about whether he is tipping his pitches to the batters because all of a sudden they've just started hitting him and he's a two pitch guy. And that is something that the Jays need to definitely keep an eye on because if that is the case, they need to find another way to get him going so that the teams aren't sitting on his offerings ready to, to knock him around the park and get runs in. So you've got Barrios and Manoa who are doing well. Gosman's struggling right now. Got to get that turned around. Right now, the Jays are finishing up the last game. They had a 2-0 lead. They're now down 3-2 against the Yankees. If they get swept here, that's a big loss. The only positive side here is that the Rays and Red Sox are also losing. So they're still in second. They still have a, a, a good record right now, but it is they got to get it turned around and close that gap. They can't keep falling to 13, 14, 15 games behind the Yankees because that is just morally defeating as well. So that's our Jason flight this week. Hopefully the, uh, with the White Sox and the Brewers, followed by Boston and Tampa coming up. The Jays can turn it around, but there's still some big games, difficult games coming up in the schedule for them. We'll see how they do. Week two in the CFL just finished up. And I want a couple of things I want to talk about here. Not so much each the games that happened, but a couple of teams that are not doing what is expected of them right now. First team is the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Now they are 2-0. and And you might say, well, why are you saying that they are, you know, I'm back for me, they're having a disappointing start. And they're 2-0. And you might ask, well, why? Why is they're 2-0? They haven't lost. It's how they've won. They're both their beginning game, like their first two games are against Ottawa. And Ottawa, yes, has made a lot of changes to their team. And a lot of new players are in. A lot of talent was brought in to turn that team around. And yeah. They looked better at times, but then they've also looked like the Ottawa Red Blacks that don't win a lot of games. So for that reason, the Bombers, two-time defending Grey Cup champions, still should have had a better showing and better games against the Ottawa Red Blacks because Ottawa could have, maybe should have won both of those games. And that's how not sharp Winnipeg looked. Yeah, they had one point through the first half this weekend in week two, and it was just a single. And that, from that offense, they lost a lot of guys. They've still got Caleros there, but Darvin Adams is gone. Kenny Lawler is gone. Uh, Andrew Harris is gone. A lot of guys are who were a big part of that offense are gone. And their running backs, uh, Olivieri and Augustine, they're not getting much done. They are not moving the ball on the ground. Caleros is, is trying to move the ball in the air, and it's just not working for them right now. They do have Greg Gallinson, but they are getting very few. They're not getting the points they used to get. Their defense is still 
fairly good. Ottawa didn't put up a lot of points on them, but to me, the way the Bombers have come out, and this is my just my opinion, and CFL Winnipeg fans, you may disagree with me on this one. If you do, at the BleacherCon too on Twitter, let me know. But to me, the Bombers are a 2-0 team that for all reasons given and how things went down, probably could be 1-1 one one or 0-2. That's just kind of where they where they have sat so far. The other team I kind of wanted to talk about is the Edmonton Elks. Now, this is a team who was not very good last year. They weren't good at all. And they cleared house of their GM, their head coach, a lot of their coaching staff. They, they moved players out. They brought players in. This is a team that, going into week two, their home opener, had not won a home game since 2019. Now, we did have an entire year, 2020, where we did not have a season. But I believe they said last night in the broadcast, 980-some-odd days was since the last Edmonton home win. Now, they're playing the Saskatchewan Rough Riders last night, and they had a chance. They were up late. But, again, lack of execution and poor play. Saskatchewan was able to get a late touchdown and secure the win. This was a game that they, I think Edmonton really needed to come out and win based off the showing they had in week one against BC, who absolutely crushed them, putting 59 points on the defense. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not a big Chris Jones fan of his for his time in the CFL. I don't know that he is the coaching god that some make him out to be but i'm i'm gonna ask the question and this isn't just a you know a lions fan drubbing on the the elks just for the the sake of it but i honestly think chris jones is wearing too many hats he is gm he is head coach he is the defensive coordinator How can you focus on building a team and doing what you need to do when you have so many responsibilities? You know, last night and even in week one, yes, I saw him on the sidelines shaking his head, looking upset, looking angry. And it's like, as the head coach, you can't be angry about this because you constructed this roster. You're the GM. You put these players together. You are the one that made those decisions. You are the head coach. You are the one who comes up with the game plan for the entire team. And you're also the defensive coordinator. To me, you can't do one thing well when you have all that extra on your plate. To me, I think Chris Jones as a GM has to sit back and decide whether he fires himself as defensive coordinator and put someone else in there to take that office plate and to give himself more time to deal with the head coaching duties during the game. Uh, as GM, does he give more to his assistant GM, G. Roy Simon, to get him to do, to again, to allow him more time as a head coach and possibly still a defensive coordinator to prepare the team for the week? It's a lot for one person. I think his ego says he can do it. Uh, it It is not working so far. This team is no better than the team it was last year. 
no better than the team it was last week. Because honestly, I think Saskatchewan, even though it was a closer game, they didn't play very well. It's almost as if they played down to the Elks level. To me, I think Chris Jones is wearing too many hats for the Elks and it's costing them. I think someone above him, not that there's too many, needs to reel in his responsibilities a little bit and dial it back. Make sure he's focused on what he's doing and the rest of this season. Because if it continues this way, it could be a one and done for Chris Jones in all three positions. That's just my thoughts on that. Moving on to some NHL news and notes as we are two games into the Stanley Cup final. And I'm not surprised how the first game went. It was a overtime win, but it was uh it was a high a bit of a high scoring game. And for when you look at it, I think it was 5-4 OT victory and or 4-3. Colorado took the lead early and Tampa stormed back as they can and do. And they made a game of it late and just a good play, good setup by Colorado ended it within a minute in, in overtime and gave them the momentum going into game two, where again, for the, not just the second time in who, who knows how long, but second time in two games, Andre Vasilevsky allowed three plus goals in the first period. Again, it's something that just doesn't happen in, in his game. During the panel, they they talked about whether Cooper would pull him in intermission. And they all said, Cooper has said that he is his guy. He's going to ride him. And like Cooper can think of one time that he's pulled Vasilevsky. Well, at a certain point, I think, and because John Cooper did not pull Vasilevsky in this game, second game two, the game ended up 7 nothing for Colorado. And I think by not pulling Vasilevsky, you just showed Colorado that they can they can score at will on him. Now, Vasilevsky is a hell of a goaltender, probably one of the best to play the game. Honestly, he's the best goaltender in the game right now. He's definitely one of the top to ever play the game. So I, I, I don't know how much of a mental factor a 7-0 loss will do to him. He always seems to come back. We saw... Tampa go down two nothing to New York and come back and win in in six. They won four straight. Now Colorado is not the New York Rangers, and Colorado is a very good, strong team that when they get rolling, they're going to be tough to beat. They're a very well rounded out team, and I think this could be very difficult for Tampa to come come back in. You know, Trevor said he said Tampa in six. I said Tampa in seven. That uh, for me, the the benefit of the doubt that Tampa has earned from winning two in a row may uh, may start to be disappearing a little bit because they're not looking like the Tampa Bay Lightning that have won two Stanley Cups in a row. But they again are Tampa Bay. Colorado has to keep that momentum going. They are going to be heading into Tampa now for two. So we'll see what some home cooking does for the Lightning, whether they can turn it around. I don't think that they have been embarrassed like that in the playoffs in a long time, if ever. And I think, is this is that the game that awakens the beast or pokes the bear, for lack of a better term? I don't think Tampa is out of it yet, but it is very close. And 
Colorado is feeling it right now. They are they are riding a wave into into Tampa, and it could be series in by the time of next week. If they can come out in game three and actually and put another W on the board, that's going to put a lot of pressure on Tampa. Uh, Tampa is a team that can come back. They've got a lot of high scoring forwards, Braden Point, Kucherov, Stamkos, the list goes on. They've got good defenders. They've got a lot of people that can, can turn it around for them. So we'll see how it goes. Can Tampa come back or has Colorado got this in the bag? Could it be a sweep in the finals? We'll see. We're, uh, we're halfway there to that for Colorado. Uh, Tampa could come back and sweep the next four games, but it's not going to be very easy for them to do that. Staying in Florida with the Panthers, this th- though, the, a report came out this week. Frank Saravelli of Daily Faceoff put out a tweet saying that he's hearing that the Panthers have actively been interviewing head coach candidates, the likes of Pete DeBoer, Travis Green, Rick Tockett, Barry Trotch, and potentially Paul Maurice. For me, this is very confusing in that you had a coach in Andrew Brunette who was the runner-up for the Jack Adams. He took over for Coach Quenville, who rightfully and should have stepped down, he did, for his part in the Kyle Beach saga. And Andrew Brunette took that team and just continued on like it was no big deal. Like nothing had, nothing had changed in that locker room. He continued them on their winning ways. And he almost seems to be a side note in this conversation of head coaches. You know, by no means am I saying give a guy who stepped in first head coaching gig as an interim head coach, you know, a five, six year deal. But I think he, probably earned himself a two-year deal to be the head coach for this team. You know, they, yes, they won the first round and then they got swept by Tampa Bay. And I I don't know that that is an Andrew Brunette problem, but the fact that he is being discussed as a side note and he's waiting to find out whether he has a job or not, to me is very, very confusing. it just doesn't make a lot of sense that you leave a guy like this who continued on your team and had a very successful season. Doesn't know if he's employed or not. Um, to me, it almost comes across a little, I want to say yeah, maybe a little disrespectful. He, he, I think earned himself at least a two year deal to be the guy to be behind the bench. And the fact that you've got some shiny new toys out there and the likes of DeBorah and trots, even, you know, Paul Maurice. I don't know. It, it, like Rick Tockett and Travis Green. Travis Green just got fired from the Vancouver Canucks and did not do well there. So I don't understand why you'd look at a guy like Travis Green who just lost his job versus a guy who took over and continued on your team's success. First, I just, to me, again, like I say, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Hopefully they realize what they have and stick with Andrew Brunette, but we'll see. Uh, as we've seen through other teams and organizations like the Golden Golden Knights, their loyalty isn't always there for them. So we'll see how it goes. But that's some confusing news out of Florida. On to some actual 
hires that happened this week. And again, a head scratcher in Philadelphia, John Tortorella, uh, I believe got a four-year deal from Philly. Very confusing because to me, Torsonly does so well in certain positions and it's usually not, it's usually not four years. Uh, Tortorella's shelf life with most teams does not last that fourth year in Vancouver saw it as a Canucks fan. It was a year at best. Like he did not last more than a year. He took the Canucks to a great start through January and then it fell apart and absolutely went off the rails and he was done in uh, Columbus. It was a good first couple of years. And then that was it. The next two were not great. And he was out top players wanted to leave and they did even after he was gone. You know, he talked about bringing a culture change to Philly, and I don't know what that means. And I'm I'm a little worried for a guy like Cam Atkinson who left the Blue Jackets under Tortorella and is now having him as a coach again. Torres is 63. I actually didn't realize he was that old. And and sometimes when you look at older coaches. You think, you know, I asked a question about um, La Russa in Chicago with the White Sox manager last week. And, you know, had the game passed him by. Is he too old for the game and how he thinks it and such? Torres, I don't know, necessarily is too old for the game, but I know he the game, it definitely doesn't suit him. He is not a fan of the excitement, the the new age players, if you will, the, the Trevor Zgrasses who go out there and wow the crowd and do exciting things. He absolutely hates it and thinks it's bad for the game. So what is he going to do to this Flyers team who was not very good last year? Uh, You know, they got Kevin Hayes, they James Van Reems, like Cam Atkinson, Travis Konechny, Joel Farabee. Ivan Provo, what's going to happen with this team going forward are they going to be toned down not that they're flashy exciting players but are we going to get a dump and chase trap type team out of philadelphia are they going to be boring to watch i just don't know i don't know that this is the right choice for them in this situation and if it is four years it's potentially two two more than it'll last if it works out um very, con- very interesting, very confusing hiring in Philadelphia. The Vegas Golden Knights, they got themselves the new shiny coach after letting Pete DeBoer go in Cassidy. Bruce Cassidy is now the, uh, the head coach. He was unemployed for about a week after getting let go in a surprising move, really, kind of by Boston, unless – the players spoke up and said that they were were not enjoying it or something happened. I don't know, but it was a little bit of a, a confusing move from Boston letting him go. Vegas snapped him up. They're always looking for the newest, next shiny toy for them to have. And Bruce Cassidy is that for them. Bruce Cassidy is a, a good coach. He did very well. And I hate saying this as a Cox fan, he did very well in, in Boston. And he had players like, 
the the perfection line in Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand. And when you look at the top line of Vegas, yeah, you know, Mark Stone and Bergeron comparable. Uh Bergeron probably better of the two. He is also older, but Mark Stone similar. Max Pacioretty uh, doesn't stay healthy enough. Now, if you put William Carlson on that line, sure, he plays with you know a bit of an offensive side. I don't know. You know, you have Jack Eichel, he would kind of be that scorer like Pasternak is, but Jack Eichel is all about him. He is a very selfish player, and I'm going to get to that in a second. I don't see them having a Marchand who's that pest, plays the 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 dirty areas and can be productive. So it's interesting to see how that's going to play. He doesn't quite have the same build of a roster like that up front. And how is Jack Eichel going to receive Bruce Cassidy as a coach? At the end of the season, when Vegas was eliminated and they were done, at the end of the game, you saw we all saw Jack Eichel do the eye roll when he went and gave the goalie the, the tap on the head. At, I believe it was Logan Thompson for the final game because uh, Robin Lehner was injured at the time, and so was Laurent Bressois, and they were out of the, the, the playoffs anyways. It, it's just very... Jack Eichel to me is not a team player. He's it's all about him. And the difference between Boston and Vegas is you had your top line, all three guys bought into their roles, bought into the system, bought into how to play successful hockey as a group rather than individuals. Because Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand would all be superstars on their own team, on a different team where they were the guy, they would be the superstars, they would be the guys on the team. Jack Eichel doesn't like sharing that spotlight with anyone. And you saw it in Buffalo. They were just as happy to see him go when he left. And and Bruce Cassidy is a good coach. I would say it's a good hire. I just don't know how it's going to work out for him in Vegas with Jack Eichel. And that is the big question mark. Injuries are a question mark for this team. Stone does not stay healthy. Pacioretty does not stay healthy. You know, looking at Robin Lehner does not necessarily stay healthy all the time. They got a lot of guys on injured reserve right now, not including Shea Weber, but injuries were a big thing that hurt this team this year. We'll see how it works out for them coming up. But as it stands right now, uh, yeah, I mean, I call it a good hiring. It is. Cassie's a good coach. You scoop him up as quick as he can. But he's got to get everyone on board with a system and how how he wants them to play. So... We'll see how it all plays out. <clears throat> Let me know what you think at the BleacherCon 2 on Twitter. And am I, did I miss something? And am I out of line? Am I, you know, completely out of it? Let me know. We covered a lot of stuff here today. Don't forget to check out uh, Belly Up Sports online, bellyupsports.com, Belly Up Sports TV, 24-7 content, streaming at Tiki Live or on a streaming TV services like Roku, check it out. Uh, for the Tiki Live is www.tikilive.com slash channel slash belly dash up. That's the show for this week. I want to thank everyone for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.